Chapter the Thirtieth of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Blind. So white, so cold, so still was the rigid figure borne from the pond to Mr. Aspinall's house. Travis might well count him a dead man, as the rumour ran concerning him, and feeble old Kitty sent up a lamentation as over the dead. Mrs. Ashton, who knew that to be a home without a thinking woman at its head, volunteered her services, and entered the house with the bearers, leaving the trembling Augusta with their friends. She gently put the old woman aside, and felt pulse and heart. "'There is life,' said she, "'and while there is life there is hope. Keep tears until there is a time to shed them. Now we must act.' Then, turning to the scared and scurrying servants, she gave her orders much as though she had been in her own warehouse, and with a stately authority there was no disputing. The butler was bidden to bring brandy quick, the footman was required to wheel this sofa to the fire and pile up the coals, a maid was asked for hot blankets without delay, a moaning kitty was set to work to help strip her young master and chafe his limbs, and so promptly were her clear cool orders obeyed, that when the doctor arrived in a hot haste with Mr. Aspinall, half his work was done. The pulse had quickened, and the limbs began to glow, though the eyelids remained closed. Most grateful, then, was Mr. Aspinall for the efficient matronly service rendered to his motherless boy by the stately lady, who was drawn nearer to him in his helplessness by her own kindly act than by all the conciliatory visits and peace-offerings with which Lawrence had himself sought to propitiate her. And for once Mr. Aspinall accepted a kindness as a favour, not as a tribute to his personal importance, and he placed his carriage at the disposal of Mr. Ashton and herself, for their return home, without a sign of his usual self-inflation. His importance received a considerable shock, however, when he called at the house in Mosley Street the following day to report progress, and relieve himself of his obligation to his son's preserver by paying over the five hundred pounds he had in his extremity offered as a reward. "'I do not think Mr. Clegg will accept a reward,' said Mr. and Mrs. Ashton in a breath. "'Not accept it,' said the portly figure, and the portly figure seemed to swell, Five hundred pounds is a large sum for a young man in his position. Only a fool or a madman would refuse it. Just so, just so, replied Mr. Ashton, offering his open snuff-box to his visitor, whilst Mr. Ashton stirred the fire as a sort of dubious disclaimer. But I think, for all that, you will find that we are right. Mr. Clegg is not a common man, and is not actuated by common motives. My dear, he nodded, and Mrs. Ashton pulled the bell-rope. Mulberry-suited James answered on the instant. Mr. Clegg is wanted. Mr. Clegg, labouring under the disadvantage of a cold caught the previous afternoon, to which any huskiness of voice might be attributed, obeyed the summons. He was presented duly to Mr. Aspinall, and much to that gentleman's surprise was invited to take a seat. Absolutely invited to take a seat, as he afterwards recounted in indignation to a friend. These Whigs have no respect for a gentleman's feelings. Nor had Jabez. He was pale enough when he entered, but his face flushed, his lips compressed, and the scar on his brow showed vividly 
as Mr. Aspinall drew forth a roll of crisp banknotes from his pocket-book, and loftily offered to him the reward he had earned by his bravery. He flushed, put back the notes with a movement of his hand, and said, coldly, "'You owe me nothing, sir. The meanest creature on God's earth should have freely such service as I rendered to your son. I cannot set a price on life.' "'But I offered the reward, and the fact is I must discharge my debt. Reconsider, young man. It is a large sum. Many a man starts the world with less.' "'A large sum to pay for your son's life, or for mine, sir?' interrogated Jabez, drawing himself up stiffly, adding, without waiting for a reply, "'I do not sell such service, sir. You owe me nothing. Let your son thank Miss Ashton for his life. He is her debtor, not mine.' The words seemed to rasp over a nutmeg grater. They came so hoarsely, as did his request for leave to withdraw, and he closed the door on the five hundred pounds, and on the smiles of husband and wife, before the rebuffed cotton merchant could master his indignation to reply. The notes in his palm were light enough, but lying there they represented liberality contemned, a debt unpaid, an undischarged obligation to an inferior, and not thrice their value in gold could have pressed so heavily on Mr. Aspinall as that last consideration. The frigid manner of Jabez he construed into radical impudence, he resented the salesman's repudiation of reward as a personal affront, and did not scruple to express his views openly, then and there, winding up with a question which startled his interlocutors. What did the singular young man mean by his reference to Miss Ashton? Had they followed the singular young man across the hall to the sanctuary of his own sitting-room, seen him dash himself down into a chair, and bury his head in his hands on the table with unutterable anguish on his face? and heard burst from his lips, more as a groan than embodied thought. Oh, Augusta, adored Augusta, what a presumptuous madman I've been! They would but have had half the answer. But had they mounted the polished oaken stairs to the dainty chamber where Augusta Ashton lay in bed with a cruel headache, brought on by the fright, and eyes red with weeping at the catastrophe which had befallen her adorable admirer, the gallant lieutenant, and heard her half-audible lamentations, the answer might have been complete. Mrs. Ashton had heard Augusta's frantic appeal to Jabez at the pond, and had seen him stagger and turn livid as if shot, noted the inward struggle ere he had said, I will, but she had ascribed it to old and unforgiven injuries, and thinking it hard that he should be called upon to hazard his life for his known enemy, with chances so heavy against him, had herself forbidden the attempt. This was all the solution she had to offer Mr. Aspinall. In the excitement of the accident and the rescue, she had overlooked Augusta's excessive emotion, but now her mother's heart took alarm. Could it be that the younger eyes of Jabez had seen a preference for the handsome scapegrace which she had not? The matter was talked over by husband and wife long after Mr. Aspinall had left, and the anxious mother questioned the maiden in the privacy of her own room to come thence with the sad conviction that Augusta had prematurely been led captive by a handsome face and a dashing air, irrespective of worth or worthlessness. Yet she consoled herself and Mr. Ashton with the reflection, It is, after all, only a girlish fancy, and will die out. Just so, and as a young rake is laid by the leg for one while, there is all the more chance, assented Mr. Ashton. 
if his immersion does not convert him into a hero, added the matron, with a clearer knowledge of her daughter. Yet neither asked themselves how the intuitive perception of Jabez came to be more acute than their own, nor what power impelled him to risk his life for an enemy at the mere bidding of Augusta. Indeed, they set the hazardous exploit down to the score of magnanimity and bravery only. Equally unobservant were they of Ellen Chadwick's remonstrance, or her feverish watch of every perilous turn Jabez and Nelson had taken on the ice, or of the caresses she had lavished on the dog when all was over. Only Mrs. Chadwick had seen that, as she had seen fainter signs years before. But she held her peace, and having a leaven of her sister's pride, hoped she was mistaken. There were three young hearts consumed by the same passion, that which lies at the root of the happiness or misery of the world, one nursing the romance, two fighting against its hopelessness in silence and concealment. But the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Jabez Clegg could not tell when he had not loved Augusta Ashton, from the time when she was young enough to play about the ware-rooms, or to be lifted across the muddy roadways in his strong apprentice arms, when it was his pleasant duty to protect her to and from school. But he could trace back the time when Hogarth's prince gave to that love a definite shape, and he began to look upon his master's daughter as a prize to be attained. All things had tended to confirm his belief in its possibility, and love and ambition had gone hand in hand, and fed each other. The child had come to him for companionship and entertainment. The girl under his protection had confided to him her school-day troubles, and come to him for help in difficulties, with lessons on slate or book. She had looked up to him, trusted him, clung to him, and though she was as a star in his firmament, he also had a sort of vague impression that the star which shone upon him from afar would draw nearer, and, as he rose to it, come down to meet him. His first sharp awakening was her reminder that the pair of intoxicated officers who had insulted her in the theatre were gentlemen, and so not to be chastised by him. His second, and then jealousy added a sting, was meeting Aspinall face to face in the hall, when the latter smilingly bowed himself out on his first visit and now he brooded in despair over the final dissipation of his dream beneath the icicle-hunting boughs on Ardwick Green, for the first time conscious that she belonged to another sphere. Never by look or word had he done himself or her or her parents the dishonour of giving expression to his ambitious love, and now another had looked on his divinity and won her for himself. It came upon him like a flash, when that white-faced agony that piteous cry called him to imperil his own life, worthless in the scale against another, and that other. It came upon him with a flash that scathed like lightning. He'd forgiven the boy Aspinall long ago, and the man, well, Augusta's happiness demanded the sacrifice, and he had made it. Out of his very love for Augusta, he had saved the rival's life she had prayed for, and he had been offered money for the act which wrecked his own life. Thank God he had rejected it with scorn. A kind hand laid on his shoulder interrupted a reverie which had induced torpor. Mr. Clegg, you are ill. Your cold requires attention. You had better seek repose. You are quite feverish. Repose? 
the man's soul was on fire as well as his body yet from his chamber a fortnight later emerged a grave business man without an apparent thought beyond the warehouse and what of lawrence aspinall whom we left with closed eyes wrapped in blankets on a sofa he had hung suspended in the water for an hour by the clock in the tower of st thomas's ivy-clad church and notwithstanding he had kept his limbs and the water in motion so long as he had power the chill had extended upwards and though life had been called back sight and reason were in abeyance shorn of his rich curls for weeks he raved and struggled in the grasp of brain fever and old kitty forgetting everything but her promise to his dead mother watched and tended him night and day albeit nurses from the fever ward relieved each other in their well-paid care of him the frost was gone vegetation bound so long had leapt upwards from its chains lilacs and maybuds greeted him with perfume through the open windows and even the daffodil and narcissus sent up their incense from the brim of the garden pond when he began to show signs of amendment better much better were the answers to inquirers among whom may be cited kit townley and bob their sometime groom but the lilac and the hawthorn ripened and faded and the daffodils gave place to the wallflower and carnation and the rosebuds opened their ripe lips to june yet the rich cotton merchant's son saw nothing of the glow over the blue eyes of lawrence the lids were closed and not an oculist in the town had skill to open them dr hull the consulting physician of the eye institution and his surgical colleagues messrs wilson and travers had laid their heads together over a case peculiar in all its bearings but the lids remained obstinately shut at length when hope had folded her drooping wings in despair and mr aspinall was borne down with grief for his sightless son some one suggested that as water had done the mischief water in action might cure it can he swim asked rough dr hull curtly of kitty swim ay he can do out he shouldna do replied the old woman having no faith in the value of her charge's peculiar accomplishments is he a good swimmer i reckon so he used to swim for wages the hardy green pond when he were quite a little chap that will do mr aspinall was conferred with and the next day's mail coach took the blind patient his father kitty and one of the surgeons to liverpool after a night's rest at the york hotel they were driven down to st george's pier a very humble presentment of what it is in this our day like manchester liverpool has vastly swelled in size and importance within the last fifty years and her docks have grown with the shipping needing shelter the mersey was not the crowded highway it is now there were fewer ships and no steamers to cross each other's track and set the waters in commotion defying wind and tide mr aspinall had engaged a boat to be in readiness the sightless athlete was rowed a short distance from curious spectators on the pier and then his face being turned towards birkenhead he plunged into the swelling river which he breasted like a triton so welcome and native seemed the element to him and as the salt wave buoyed him up or dashed over his cropped head he appeared to gain fresh strength with every stroke anxiously his three attendants followed in his wake lest cramp should seize him or his impaired strength give out before the river 
there more than a mile in breadth, could be crossed. Yet not a yard of the distance baited he. By instruction he had bent his course slightly downstream, so as to meet the opposing tide, then rolling in with a freshet. He struck out boldly, the very dash of the salt waves invigorating him as they broke over his bare pole, or laved his naked limbs. Still well in advance of the boat, he seemed at last to cross the current as a conqueror. He touched the shore at Rock Ferry, and, miracle of miracles, his eyes were opened. Lawrence Aspinall, who for weeks had cursed his darkened existence, could once more see. End of chapter the 30th